Last week, as we um, were supposed to get to chapter 3, we did not. We only got through chapter 2. I made the point last week that Romans is the first of 13 of Paul's epistles and probably the most important. Uh, Chapters three and four are going to do a very good job of laying the foundation for this Sunday because what we have in chapter five is actually an Old Testament picture uh, using Abraham as an example of what we're gonna be studying in three and four. Um, Just to refresh your memory a little bit, go to the last verse from chapter two. I guess we have to pick it up in verse 28 where it says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outwardly in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not from man but from God. Uh, The main point that we made last week is chapter 2, It's uh, religion versus relationship. And what identified a believer if you were Jewish is if you were circumcised. And it was an an outward sign, but the Lord is basically saying in this last verse here, 29, that's not what it's about for the Jew. I'm not interested in, in the cutting away of the flesh, but the cutting away from the heart. It's an issue of the heart. So he says, forget Religion, And then we went to Matthew 23 and we showed how the Lord laid into the religious leaders of his day, called them vipers, he called them snakes, he called them hypocrites, every name in the book. Because he said by your religiosity, you're actually keeping people from coming to know me in a personal way. And so um, sometimes when you're talking to people, they go, oh, you're religious. And I'll tell them straight out, I hate religion. And if, if that doesn't set them back, that really, what do you mean you hate religion? You heard me, I hate religion. Was it Marx who said it? I can't remember. Uh, religion is the opiate of the people. Was it him? It was one of those guys. Yeah, Karl Marx. And it's true. And re- religion can be one of the most dangerous things from causing a person to come to the Lord. Why two and three are so important, is this blows that right out of the water. Now for us as Gentiles, it would be um, infant baptism. And we say, well, I'm going to heaven because I was baptized when I was a small child. I grew up in a Protestant um, church and um, been to many uh, Protestant funeral. And they'll tell you straight out, you're going to heaven because you were baptized in water as an infant. And um, grew up with that, never knew the Lord. And it actually kept uh, me from actually coming to the Lord because after all, was baptized, had confirmation, I'm in like Flint, no problemo. And so what would be chapter, if we would summarize this, two and three, the main thing that you want to take away from our study tonight is Paul's going to make the strong argument that the law is necessary. Um, So we're going from the the idea of of circumcision here into this first verse. It says, what advantage then has the Jew? So it's tag-teaming on to the 29th verse of chapter 2. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is a profit of circumcision? He says, much and in every way, chiefly because to them was committed the oracles of God. The whole Old Testament, um, the last Old Testament prophet was actually John the Baptist. Jesus said he was the greatest man who ever lived. And the main point tonight is going to be faith and grace. 
And what I want to point out, because we're going to use David as an example, our hero of him falling terribly. But um, um, for us, um, and John the Baptist, if he was the greatest man who ever lived, just think about this. The greatest man who ever lived doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. And he was in prison. Sometimes I think when he, this whole lockaway thing people are going through, my heart really goes out to him. I mean, I at least have air conditioning in my house. <laughs> and I'm born again. And with all this craziness that's going on in the world, I know it's all going downhill from here. But I know that the Lord has his purposes and plans. And um, we have a hope that nobody else has. But what I've been thinking about is what if you're not saved, you don't have air conditioning, and you just lost your job? You are, you are really a bummed out person. And, um, you know, people are going to try to keep that stiff upper lip. How you doing? Fine. No, you're not. <laughs> you're really going through it. But we, we don't want to project that. We don't want people to think that about us. I call it the normality bias. Everything's normal. Everything's fine when everything isn't. Um, but the hope comes here. If John the Baptist could fail in the very mission, he was the one, his, he had one job. Uh, he, it says in Malachi 3.1, he, he was a, the voice shouting in the wilderness. His one job was to point his finger when Jesus came to be baptized today. He says, there he is. There's the Lamb of God. And he's going to take away the sins of the world. That was his whole life's ministry. But when he was in prison, and he was the greatest man who ever lived, somehow it gives me some sort of strange encouragement that he doubted. And um, I like how the Lord responded to John's question. John goes to his disciples and says, I want you to go talk to Jesus and ask him, are you the one? Or should we be looking for somebody else? <laughs> John, it's, you're saying that? And um, Jesus said, okay, go talk to John. Go tell him the death here, the blind see, the dead are raised back to, to life. Those were things that the Messiah could only do. And then he said something that John wasn't expecting. And blessed is everyone who is not offended by me. John is sitting there. All he would eat was honey and wild locusts. And here's Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and uh, sinners. And he's going, the Son of God is hanging out with tax collectors and people with, with questionable character like the Mary Magdalene's, and, um, and so forth. And he was telling something to John that only John knew. And he said, by the way, tell John, blessed is he who is not offended by me, implying what? John was offended. And he asked to, actually to the point where he asked his disciples to go say, are you the one or we should be looking for somebody else? So I say that because here he's Jewish and he is the last of the Jewish uh, prophets and the advantage that the Jew has is to them was committed the scriptures. For what if some did not believe, will their unbelief make their faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, and uh, again I want to, Every time we get to an Old Testament verse, I told somebody on the phone today I was talking to that watches live stream, and um, he wanted to know a little bit more about starting a Bible study and, and so on and so forth, and my opinion on a couple of, of issues. And I said, well, one of the main things that I like to point out is I don't think you can go through a chapter, any chapter in the New Testament, and find something like in verse four it says, it is written. And then point out that the Old Testament is absolutely vital in order to understand the New Testament. You will never understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. You understand the book of Daniel, you'll understand the book of Revelation. 
If you don't understand the book of Daniel, you'll never understand the book of Revelation. And that's why it's, it's not being taught very much today. But here's one of these things where Paul is getting to make his point that our salvation is not predicated upon outward religiosity. He says, certainly not. God is true and every man a liar. I like that. So no, no matter what you think about an issue, okay, if it contradicts what the scripture says, guess what? God is true and we're not. God is always right if the scriptures um, and the church has gotten so off into so many wild different things today that I could get it out in tangent and I better be careful. But he says, as it is written. Now he's quoting Psalm 51. That you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So in these first four verses here, he gives them this Old Testament scripture, uh, this Old Testament prophecy that Paul would be quoting Uh, in the book of Romans. Now in verses five through eight, he says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man, certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, well, let's just do evil that good may come. Now let's just stop there before I finish this. And this was sort of an attitude that he was saying some people will have. What the heck, why not sin? If God is good and God is going to forgive, go to chapter six, Verse one, this was an attitude that was prevailing in Rome, in the Roman church. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And uh, we'll, we'll be there in a couple weeks. How shall we who died to sin live any longer after it? So again, it's not about infant baptism, but it's about being born again, born of the Spirit, and being justified by faith, and our works and the things we do have nothing to do with it. Now James tells us that faith without works is dead, so we are gonna do good works, but only because we love the Lord. Um, I like to compare it to when I was young, 16, 17, a new record would come out, and I'd be all excited about it, and I'd tell my friends, you gotta listen to this new record, man, it is great. And it's the same with the gospel. I want to give this to you because it's so good. You gotta hear this. And so when a a person comes to a real relationship with the Lord, of course we're gonna do good works. Of course we're gonna wanna help. But not because it's a religious obligation, as in Roman Catholicism. This is one of the requirements for salvation um, in Roman Catholicism is that works have to be a part of, of uh, your admission. All right, it goes on, so that, right, let's go back and finish our verse. Why not say, let's do evil that good may come? Well, Romans 6 puts that to rest very easily. As we are slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. All right, the con- Conclusion in verses 9 through 20 here that all are guilty before the Lord. And this is important to understand why. Because most people, when you ask them about, or in their own thinking, am I going to heaven? They have what I often use as a scale. Uh, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, therefore. Uh, on that basis, they think they'll be going to heaven. And what we're gonna learn here is that we have no good deeds. We read things that we don't like to hear. That in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Good place for an amen. 
Yeah, but we don't really believe that. We believe there's got to be a little good somewhere. Well, there is if you're born again. Because it says every good and perfect gift comes from you, right? No, it comes from above. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. So you do a good work. And somebody slaps you on the back for it. And all you can do if you're smart, if you want to be gracious, like Pastor Chuck always said, say, well, thank you very much. In the back of your head, you go on, Lord, all, all the glory goes to you. I know who I am, and I know who you are. So praise, this is where we get the, the terminology, praise the Lord. And this truth, we're told, will set you free. But if works or any part, I uh, like to say of me doing anything to gain salvation is a part of the equation, I'm gonna blow it somewhere. And this is really what this, chapter here is really all about what then are we better verse 9 through 20 what then are we better than they not at all for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are under sin again here it is as as it is written there is none righteous no not one there's not one who understands there's no one who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, I have some, if you're taking notes, this is um, Psalm 14. Oh, what the heck, let's, let's just go there so we can tie scriptures together. Psalm 14, verses one through three. It says, the fool has said in the heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there's any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And um, so this is being quoted Here, Paul is drawing it from Psalm 114. Now, verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the ways of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Now we have the therefore. We started in verse uh, nine here. Now the therefore of everything we just read. Therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The law tells us the right from wrong. There's absolute necessity. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul will go on to say I was innocent until the law came along. And then the law said thou shalt not covet. And in my heart I know that I'm a coveter. Uh, The law says thou shalt not steal. Well I know in my heart I've stolen. And so it's the law that's held up that shows me that I am a sinner and I have broken his law. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so um, the rest of this chapter, I'm gonna keep on pace tonight because I really blew it last week (laughs) getting through only that one chapter. 21 through 31, we'll stop at this point at this time, I'm going to ask him to put the Romans road to salvation up because here in this part we have, um, actually it's one of the first tracks that ever came out. Uh, and here we have, um, using the book of Romans, you can lead a person to Christ. And the first thing that you need that is, is given to us is in these verses. Romans 3, verse 23. Let's make our way down to it. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And we'll see this in picture form on Sunday morning when we look at Abraham. Even the righteousness of of God which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The one thing every person who has ever been born has in common is that they were born a sinner. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's the whole gospel right there. But the first step is um, when we read the reason that the Lord says it's expedient that I leave because if I don't leave I can't send the Holy Spirit. And when we read the first responsibility of the Holy Spirit is to convict you that you are a sinner. So on Acts 2 when Peter was preaching and he laid out the gospel that they had crucified the very one that the Father had sent. And uh, yet he died for your sins. And at that point it says they were cut to the heart. And... um, as I like to say, you can have no conversion without conviction. You gotta be convicted. And this awareness that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But being freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Again, that produces this attitude of gratitude. And um, But it's step one and I'm just gonna leave this up until I have one more slide of the garden tomb at the end of the study. But here's the first one here, that, that all have sinned and uh, fallen short of God's glory. Verse 25, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, when we read passed over our sins, you know, flashback, Egypt. Um, Every Jew was required to go to Jerusalem three times a year, and one of them was for for the Passover feast. To commemorate what? So that they would never forget that when the blood was applied to the door lentils of the door, and the firstborn of um, all that were in Egypt would die unless you had blood on the doorpost of your door. Then what would happen? Death would pass over. Therefore, we get the term Passover. And it's the same idea here. Uh, The person who has the blood applied to their life, um, death passes over you. God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, which is boasting then, question, it is excluded. By what law or works? No, by the law of faith. So he's eliminating here good works, keeping the law, they've been excluded, can't boast because the Lord did it all. I can't take credit um, for any good thing that I do. It will be attributed to my account someday. According to the 1 Corinthians 3 where we read about the judgment seat of Christ. The Lord is very good at bookkeeping. So he knows every good work that you have done in his name with the right motive. And he says you will be rewarded for that. And um, Uh, Verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yep, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, both Jew and Gentile come to salvation the same way by the finished work of Christ. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. 
the law is absolutely essential because as we read in this last verse 20, um, for by the law comes the knowledge of sin. The importance of the Old Testament. The person who called me on the phone, I said, you know, these days it's rare for people to teach through the whole Bible, starting in Genesis and going all, all the way through Revelation. Some of them get bogged down in Leviticus. But in actuality, Leviticus is one of my most favorite books in the Old Testament. I think it's steep and it's rich. And there's a lot of hidden treasure in the book of Leviticus. Um, but unless you can connect the dots, as we just did here, that's what the law was all about, the do's and the don'ts. We say there were 10 commandments. No, there weren't. There were 613 commandments. And I have certainly broke 610 of them. (laughs) Probably all 613. But it's through this knowledge that we have this, brings about this conviction and we see the necessity of receiving this free gift. The gift of salvation. Now, that's, if you want to just turn to the next one, just go to Romans 6 again, but look at verse 23. Um, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, what happens when it's your birthday or an event? And somebody just says, hey, man, here you go. I just want to give this to you. And um, what is, what's this for? I just want to give it to you. It's a gift. It's free. Well, you don't get upset. You don't turn it away. What do you do? You say, well, thank you very much. What is it? You have to go home and open it up and find out. But it's free. And um, um, basically, this is how uh, chapter 3 ends. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. All right. Chapter four. In this section here, justification by faith, we have seen the doctrine. Paul has vividly stated that man is a sinner. Then he revealed that God provides a righteousness for sinners and justification by faith has been explained. Now, he will illustrate this truth with two men out of the Old Testament, Abraham and David. In Paul's day, Abraham and David were probably held in higher esteem by the nation of, in Israel than any other uh, two whose lives are recorded in the Old Testament. Abraham, of course, was the founder of the Hebrew race, and David was the greatest king that ever lived. Paul uses these two Old Testament uh, worthy of illustrations to to establish his statement in chapter three, that there is a concord and agreement between the law and the gospel. There is the necessity of the commandments. It gives us the knowledge of sin. Although they represent two diabolically different or opposing systems, neither contradict nor conflict with the other. They are not mutually exclusive, in other words. Even under the law and before the law, faith was God's sole requirement. And we're going to see this played out in picture form on Sunday with Abraham. Abraham, before the law, was justified by faith, And David, under the law, saying of justification by faith. So as we get into this chapter, just a little heads up, um, Paul is going to use David and Abraham as illustrations and sort of pictures. So let's look at um, uh, the first eight verses. We read, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to let me read that again. What shall we? What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something of which to boast, but not before God. But what does the Scripture say? And here we go again. Another chapter, 
And then another reference that says, it is written. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. For those of you who are memorizing your Bible, here's, here's one of those must verses right here. Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. What is my work? Well, that's what the disciples wanted to know in John chapter nine. Lord, what shall we do? What work shall we do that we can inherit eternal life? And the Lord looked at the disciples and he said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him who the Father has sent. That's your job. What else? Nothing else. And if you do that, you're justified, and that's your work. That is your job. To believe that my salvation is totally 100% dependent apart from me and totally upon the Lord Jesus Christ that has finished work. And this is illustrated, first of all, and we'll see this in more detail on Sunday. It was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. And then we switch over to David in verse six here. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man who God imputes righteousness apart from works. Where he says in Psalm 32, and we're gonna be going there and doing a little sidetrack study here. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven whose sins are covered, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Turn with me to Psalm 32. I'll give you a little background here. David lived under the law. Abraham did not because no law had been given during his lifetime. The Mosaic system didn't come along until 400 years later. However, although David lived under the law, David could never be saved under the law, and therefore David describes the blessedness that God reckons righteousness without works, because David had no works. The works that he had were evil, and therefore righteousness must be totally apart and separated from works. Righteousness must come from an entirely different principle. Now what's interesting about Psalm 32, and I'm also gonna go over to Psalm 51, is the background, as we call this, um, um, uh, a prayer of repentance. And the background to this is the affair that he had with Bathsheba And to cover up his tracks, he had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered. And he carried this around with him for quite a while. And so that's the background to him writing Psalm 32. For he says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. And then he says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. Now this is a period of time before he's going to be confronted with his sin. And we're gonna be going there in a minute. But now he's sharing his emotion because the sin was keeping him awake at night. When I kept silent, My bones grew old and through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vanity was turned into the drought of summer. And then it says I acknowledge my sin to you. Well it makes it sound here like David finally uh, just got up and fessed up. He says "Um, but that's not how it happened. He carried his sin around with him. And my iniquity I have not hidden. Well, that's really not true. He was hiding it. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Now, let's go to, um, I'll just look quickly at 51, 
because this is another um, psalm. This is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So if we just read Psalm 32, we think that David just finally one day fessed up. And um, uh, let's, make it, let's make it applicable here and personal. Um, all of us sin. Um, I quote this all the time from the Proverbs. On your best day, you're gonna blow it seven times. So if you walk in repentance, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sin, then he's faithful and just to forgive you on your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But until you confess that sin, you're feeling like David did in Psalm 32. It's like this heavy weight, your hand was upon me all the time, no peace, no rest, until. And the idea you get there is David finally fessed up under his own conviction by the Lord. That's not the case. This is written after Nathan comes to him, and we'll be going there next. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly for my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before you. Notice that he said, my sin was against Uriah. He didn't say that. My sin was against Bathsheba. He doesn't say that. He says, I've sinned before you and you only. You saw it all and you knew it all. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judged. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In other words, those cute little babies that are one year old, they're so precious and they're so beautiful and they're so cute And the very first word that they learn is no. No. That's the first word that they know how to speak. Born in rebellion. Don't. uh, I was talking with my wife and we were talking about the illustration of uh, the little boy, you know, putting his hand in a cookie jar. And mom says, Are you eating cookies out of a cookie jar? No. In denial. Hands caught in a cookie jar. You deny it. It's just part of human nature, even as little kids. David says here, I was born into iniquity. A born little sinner. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you make known wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Now you know where we get the song from. It comes from Psalm 51. And make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice, and hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me and restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sin will separate you from God. It'll steal your joy, it'll steal your peace until, until you confess that sin before the Lord. And confession is really an acknowledgement of it. And at the same time saying, Lord, help me in this area. I do not want to repeat the sin. I want to turn from it. Turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 12. David is this example tonight is um, I'm, I'm sharing it two forms, and one is the time we've entered a period of time where all the doors are wide open with immorality, and the stats out there of um, people's lifestyles, um, their sexuality, um, what they're teaching kids in first and second and third grade about, are you sure you're a guy? Are you sure you're a girl? The scripture that comes to mind when I hear that, that's being practiced today, though these are the times that we're living in, is when the Lord said, it would be better for a person to have a millstone 
tied around his neck and then drowned in the deepest sea than to turn away one of these little ones' faith for me. In other words, they go to school being brought up in the Lord by the parents and the Sunday school teachers and so on and so forth. They believe in Jesus. They love Jesus. And then they go to, go to school and they're challenged whether or not they're really a male or female. Um, and you won't be getting a job today at a university unless you have this philosophy or, or line of thinking. This is just the way it is. These are the times in which we live. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, 12, verses 1 through 14. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, I got a problem, David, and you're judge, and I need your judgment. There are two men in one city, one rich and one, one poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him, with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his own bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David was angry and greatly aroused against the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing will surely die. And you know where this is going. Bruce Coburn has a great line in one of his songs. It says, everybody loves to see justice done on somebody else. Isn't that a great line? I love I want justice. This guy deserves to die on somebody else. Well, in the book of Leviticus, under the law, the punishment for stealing a lamb was to restore it fourfold. So if you stole one, you had to give the guy back four lambs. It wasn't a death sentence. What does David turn it into? He turns it into a death sentence. And he shall restore, here it is, fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, oh, I would have liked to see in this moment, you are the man. Remember in Psalm 32, we get the idea that David confesses openly before the Lord. No, this was drug out of him by Nathan. He comes up with this hypothetical story and um, thus says the Lord God of Israel I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul I gave you your master's house your master's wives that you're keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah and if that had been too little I would have given you a whole lot more why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do this evil in his sight That's why David said when Psalm 51, in your sight, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword, there's gonna be consequences. His sin is gonna be forgiven, but there were consequences. This child that Bathsheba had, um, the Lord took. And the sword would not depart from his house. I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. He's talking about Absalom here. And I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sun of the sun. That's exactly what Absalom did. Absalom was willing to kill his own father in order to get the kingdom. And... um, when David heard that Absalom had stole the hearts of the people and that he was going to come and attack David in Jerusalem, David hightails it out of town. He runs. And what Absalom does to show that he is now king is he takes all of um, uh, David's wives and he publicly went up on the roof and um, 
interacted with them. So just saying it clearly. And everybody knew that Absalom obviously is now the king. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. Then, and here it is, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to the Lord, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Why is this important? What does the law say? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You take a death, you die. And yet, instead of receiving the law, what is being extended to him? Grace. David understood grace. He did not die. Absalom is the one who died. However, because you have done this, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who was born to you shall surely die. We all have heard of people or have friends that have made mistakes, had affairs, and because of it, their life, and, they, and then the knowledge of it got out. And what happens to that person's reputation? They'll never be the same again. And that's what happened here. There's consequences. Will your sin be forgiven? Absolutely. Will there be repercussions? Yep, there sure will be. And so, however, because of steed, your enemies um, and the child will uh, surely die. So, uh, let's get back to Romans. I wanted to spend a little time here because morality... Um, is a big issue in our country today, major issue. And let's go to, let's see, we were left off chapter four, made it through verse eight. Now nine through, nine through 12. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Again, we'll make a big point of this as an example on Sunday. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Now, on Sunday, just for a little teaser, I'm gonna get a little sidetracked here because of what's going on in the Middle East, especially Iran. And um, when it says he was the father of all nations, he's the father of all nations, including Iran. And that's just a little hint of where we're going and what's going on in Iran right now and what's going on with Russia in Russia, I told you on Sunday that uh, Russia has dropped the dollar, and our President Biden's going to go over there and put the, his fist down, and he's going to let Putin know that uh, no more of this um, break it into our computer system and gas lines and, and meat factories. Boy, I'm sure Putin's just shaking in his boots right now over this meeting that's going to be taking place. So. I want to keep the fellowship up on the cutting edge of what's really going on right now Um, because we all have friends. There's something um, I've come across um, an interview that is the best description of the war that we're having with China right now, this biological war and the vaccine in particular. Nobody has put it together more concisely in an hour's time. I'm not going to play it on Sunday, but I'm going to, and it's entitled to my friends and family, so that they can have a view of what's really taking place. I watched the news tonight. My wife said, can I turn it off now? (laughs) Because she can't handle it. Because the lies and the propaganda Um, One of the things I learned that 70% of the money that's going into 
the, the, the networks are, are coming from China. And that's 70% of their money. And they're willing to allow people to die. They know what's going on deep down inside. And he'll, um, I'm just going to leave it at that. I'll talk more about it on, on Sunday. It'll also be in the bulletin so that you can use it. I'm using it as a witnessing tool for family and friends. I'm, I'm actually laying in bed at night thinking of people that I haven't talked to in a long time. And they're going to get this. And so that they know. Um, and it's hard not to throw something at the TV when they, they tell you that we've got to reach that 70% point by 4th of July. And what they're actually is happening, I'm watching them, and this is what my wife can't handle, injecting now, um, what, the 5 to 12-year-olds? That's what they're talking about. And they don't know that they're putting a death shot in this child. Well, we'll come out with the facts, and I'll talk more about that on Sunday. I already said I wasn't going to talk about that anymore. What am I doing? Still talking about it. But it's important um, that we don't put our head in the sands with what's going on right now and pretend it isn't happening. And we need to be bold and stand up and tell people, even if you lose a friend, and you will, that's going to happen. All right. Um, Verse 12, and the father of, okay, how far did we get? 2.12. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcised, but who also walked in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Main thing being said here is Abraham was justified by faith even before circumcision um, was required. 13 through 15. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or so his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. Um, God is going to judge this world for rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ during what's called time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week, the great tribulation, whatever term you want to put on it, it's coming. It's coming around the corner. And the deaths that we're seeing, here I go again, um, as a result of this vaccine is a precursor. In other words, the, the amount of people that are dying, I believe is leading up to Revelation chapter six, the fourth seal, where two billion people are actually gonna be dead by this time. Two billion people. So we're, we're, we're talking depopulation here. And we're watching the beginnings of it right now. And it's only going to escalate as time goes on. Again, I said I wasn't going to do that, but I did it anyway. Verses um, 13 through 15. For the promise that he would be the... Oh, we we already read it, 13 through 15. Okay, so God has made the promise to Abraham long before circumcision was introduced. Abraham just believed God. That's all. That was it. 16 through 19. Therefore, so he's basically again saying it's not about your works, it's not about circumcision, but righteousness is by faith alone. Now we have a therefore as he begins to wind up this chapter. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure. I want to stop right here in verse 16 where it says, therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. I want you to turn with me to Romans 11 and we'll just look at one verse. Romans 11 verse 6. You can't have it both ways. Romans 11 verse 6 says that if it is then by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. These are mutually exclusive. Otherwise, works is no longer works. So that's, you go back to 
uh, Romans, and that's, let's call that the first verse of um, 16 with the therefore. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seeds, not only to those who are of the law or the Jew, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Here it is again, as it is written. I have made you a father of many nations. Again, this is where we'll uh, get off uh, on our sidetrack with Abraham being the father of many nations in chapter five. As, um, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of whom he believed even God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did who contrary to hope, in hope believed that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And so God promised that he would have all these descendants. The problem is to have all these descendants, you have to have a kid. His problem was he's 100 years old. Sarah's 90. <laughs> and yet he believed God anyway, who did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. If God said it, that settles it. Good place for an Amen. No matter if it seems impossible. I'm 100 years old. I can't have kids. Sarah's 90. No way. But Lord, you promised. I'm going to be the father of many nations, and therefore I have to have a son. And therefore it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Um, we'll finish this up with um, 22 through 25. For it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. Okay, so this chapter here is just not about Abraham. It's not about David. It's about you and it's about me. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Uh, Put the garden tomb on the screen, please. Just for something that you can take out of the doors as we close up the Bible study tonight. That's the real deal, in my opinion. I consider it an A-site. It is about 100 yards away from Golgotha, the place of the crucifixion, at the very top of Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. I've been there many, 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 many times. And we go into that tomb um, of the writ, of, of this rich man, it's the first century tomb. And the last verse here, who has delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our, for our justification. So it's all about this spot right here. Jesus rose, rose from the dead. He died, but he came back to life in his resurrected body. And this chapter ends with the promise who has delivered up because of our offenses and was raised. You can know that your sins are forgiven. How? Well, Jesus is alive and well. We mark time from the birth of Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life. He had to be a perfect sacrifice without blemish. On Passover, when he came came to pick out your lamb, it was inspected. And if it had any blemish at all, it would be rejected. It had to be a lamb without spot. And Jesus was examined by Pilate four times. Comes out four times and says, I find no fault with this man. Pilate's wife came down and says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I've been having dreams all night long. Leave him alone. But they crucified him according to the scriptures. And so let me leave that thought in your 
Um, the, on the door it says, he is not here, he is risen. And uh, that's the hope that we have as we make our way through the book of Galatians. Let's stand and we'll close the word of prayer. I'm back to being right on time, by the way. It's five after eight, so I'm back on in on time. Lord, thank you for your word as we go through Romans 3 and 4 this evening. And the necessity of the law that shows us that we are indeed sinners. Um, Lord, help us um, model Paul in his boldness to show the importance of the, the law that it reveals that we are sinners. But the glorious good news that because you rose from the dead, that we also too will be resurrected with new bodies. And so we commit to you the rest of this day. I pray for Sunday morning as we look at this uh, Old Testament pictures of the life of Abraham as he lays it out in chapter five, a picture from the teachings in chapters three and four. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.